Be Rad podcast is brought to you by MoFo, male optimization formula with organs to boost testosterone. Brad's macadamia masterpiece, mind-blowing nut butter blend, now offered on Amazon. Chili technology, temperature-controlled mattress systems for a good night's sleep. InsideTracker.com, offering blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data all in one place. And Organifi, whole food organic superfood supplements and drink blends. And please visit the shopping page at bradkearns.com for my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance with great discounts for listeners. Here we go with the show. We burn through carbohydrates. They are not a clean burning fuel source, so they create a lot of metabolic kind of waste products that increase oxidative stress and damage in the body. It just takes a lot longer to recover from your training sessions. You know, if you drop down the level of carbohydrate, allow for that, the body to shift its fuel substrate to help begin burn body fat, you're going to start seeing a change in the physique of these athletes and potentially not have to train as much as they would otherwise train either. If we're looking at muscle protein synthesis, which is how we always think about protein, like how do we optimize muscle protein synthesis, it is at that 1.6 grams per kg body weight. There's no need really to for muscle protein synthesis to go beyond that, but a higher protein load can help with these other things which I mentioned regarding appetite, blood sugar regulation, and a lot of practitioners say the same thing. Hey, listeners, it's my pleasure to introduce and connect you across the planet to Dr. Mickey Willadon from the great nation of New Zealand. She is a certified nutritionist and personal coach down there. She has an awesome podcast called Mickeypedia. Go look for that and listen to her great content, uh, particularly relating to diet, nutrition, athletic performance. So she's uh, very competent at counseling athletes about optimizing their diet. Uh, we had a great interview when I appeared on her show and engaging back and forth on email. She had so many interesting things and insights. So I said, hey, let's get on and let's talk about some matters of great importance to health and fitness enthusiasts. So we get into it, first of all, talking about that sore subject of overly stressful athletic training patterns and how that can really compromise your overall health, your hormone function, and lead to inability to reduce excess body fat. So we hit that body fat subject pretty hard and get into some of the the, the true secrets to dropping excess body fat, knowing now with great certainty and scientific support that it's not about calories in, calories out. And then we get a little technical on you, but it's really important to uh, pick up some of these basic insights when you are looking at your blood results. Uh, we talk about some of the thyroid numbers, some of the iron numbers that might come out as quote unquote normal. Uh, they might pass by your family physician without extra comment. Uh, but if you're an athlete, you want to dig a little deeper. And then we zero in on the uh, extremely important topic of protein intake. And this has been really fascinating to me. I'm still reeling from Rob Wolf's awesome soundbite where he said, if you want to live longer, lift more weights and eat more protein. And reflecting on how, especially people that are immersed in 
uh, low carbohydrate, ketogenic eating patterns, uh, and particularly people who are drifting over to the uh, plant-based type of eating, it's pretty easy to under-consume protein. Maybe not at the clinical level where you're becoming emaciated and exhausted and have bags under your eyes, uh, but just uh, not quite optimizing your protein intake and thereby experiencing some little rough around the edges, delayed recovery and other negative aspects. So here's a nice show to get you uh, more aware of blood results, dietary strategies for peak performance, uh, how to lose excess body fat successfully from Mickey Willidan. Mickey Willidan, all the way from New Zealand. Thanks for joining us. Oh, pleasure to be here, Brad. It's nice to see you. Yes, I'm glad to connect again. We did another interview for your show. Maybe you should plug it right now and then continue blabbing about what you're into there with your wonderful offering and the deep education you've had and how we can help people with some dietary concerns, as especially as we age. Awesome, Brad. So uh, yeah, podcast, Wikipedia. find it on all your favorite uh, platforms and um, speak to you know, experts in their fields of health, fitness, nutrition. And of course, that's how you and I connected, Brad, because one of the people I was immediately interested to talk to was you, given your wealth of experience and, and knowledge in that whole kind of arena. And um, just really fortunate to have, you know, connected with a bunch of people who are like-minded, you know, into health, into wellness and into optimizing, I suppose, their lifestyle for the um, for health span. And uh, so, yeah, that's the podcast. I'm a uh, registered nutritionist and senior lecturer here in Auckland, New Zealand, um, and also co-host over on Fitter Radio for any triathletes who, you know, enjoy kind of spending time on the wind trainer uh, listening to podcasts. It's another one. I don't think you can get a, a cooler name than Wikipedia. That is right up there at the top of the rankings. Um, so with your extensive nutritional training, I'm assuming like in New Zealand, uh, similar to America, that some of that is mainstream programming that might uh, fly wildly in the face of what you've come to learn on your own as you explore the progressive health and the ancestral health scene. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. It was, you know, it's a really interesting transition when you go to university. So I did my um, my studies at Otago University, which is one of the main universities here in New Zealand. So I did a BSc in human nutrition in addition to physical education, went on to do my master's and then subsequently a PhD down the line. But along the way, as a, as a sports nutritionist, predominantly, I found it really interesting that we would have these guidelines and then you would try to apply them to the real kind of person and they just wouldn't work. And it was almost like the secret in and amongst practitioners that, you know, whilst we sit there teaching the guidelines kind of behind our hands, we were kind of like going, we don't actually ever use them, but we're in a position really to could kind of talk to our students about what actually worked. Um, so, and it wasn't really until 2009, so relatively, that's like 11 years ago, but still seems relatively recently, um, given, you know, the number of years I'd spent practicing before. And we, we, when I was a lecturer at AUT University here in Auckland, we started thinking about how you know, athletes that you'd you'd go to a race and you'd see 
people line up on the start line and everyone had done a very similar sort of training plan. Yet, like the, you know, yes, all shapes and sizes, but you certainly wouldn't look at a lot of them. And I don't mean to, I don't know how this will sound, but I'll just say it. It just, you couldn't see the hard work in their physique, you know, because of course, when it comes to sports nutrition, it was, you know, at least eight grams of carbohydrate per kilogram body weight. Whenever you'd go out on a two hour run, you'd take four gels with you because the uh, back of the pack told you to have one every half hour. And we really started to kind of consider, well, at, as a, at a research kind of level, well, you know, the limiting factor in that sports performance appears to be carbohydrate. But what about the hundreds of thousands of calories that people have stored on their body? So the kind of, I suppose that um, the idea that the guidelines didn't necessarily work combined with this this other way of thinking about it purely from a physiology perspective kind of started the ball rolling with regards to thinking about nutrition in much the way that you do. But it was, you have to unlearn so much. And I kind of feel that as a practitioner in the space, it is almost, you go along for so many years with blinkers on because whilst the other information is out there, like you were obviously well into the field writing about ancestral health and primal health, uh, Mark Sisson, Rob Wolf, Jamie Scott, all of these people were talking about nutrition in a different way. But because I hadn't learned it at university, I just mm. thought it was, you know, not at all relevant. So it was a real kind of uh, eye-opening moment when the the penny dropped. And that's literally, I suppose, what happened. Then you had to unlearn everything, basically. Yeah, I think the favorite story along these lines is uh, the journey of Dr. Timothy Noakes, who was the world's leading exercise physiologist and nutritional expert and writing textbooks and studying the carbohydrate paradigm where the muscles reload with glycogen after their hard work. And so you have to go looking for these foods and consume them immediately after exercise. And we all took that as gospel. And I think those guidelines are indeed relevant if you are a carbohydrate dependent eater. And mm. so everything was occurring in a bubble. I mean, the great scientific research and the, the smartest minds and the Gatorade Sports Science Institute here in America with billions of dollars of funding, um, they're all doing good, wonderful work. But it seemed like it was uh, stuck inside this bubble where we were all stuffing our faces with carbohydrates throughout our lives. And then so if we want to perform athletically, of course, we're going to have to uh, calibrate for that and do what the packet says and uh, consume, um, uh, you know, one one uh, slurp every hour of the gel. Uh, so that awakening that's, I guess, happened kind of uh, on the street rather than in the university lecture rooms, even, even still today, I know people who are going through traditional training and shaking their heads, talking about how the keto diet is dangerous to health and all the other things mm. that have, you know, are still being dispensed in the, the, the you know, the pillars of, of wisdom and academia. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we're really fortunate now that there are these other institutes or, you know, even if online training institutes like Holistic Performance Institute, you've got integrative nutrition, NTP courses and, and places like that where you can learn more current and kind of up-to-date information around sports nutrition and, and just general nutrition. But it, it, 
it still feels like yeah the the I suppose that deep seated kind of understanding of of what's required hasn't changed over the last forty years and continues to to be taught in the um, kind of university lecture halls at some of the main institutes, which is super interesting. Yeah, and then you go to the race, like you described very nicely and politely. That's probably the most polite description that I've heard uh, describing how there's a bunch of fat people at these extreme endurance events. And that right there, uh, without any other evidence, you have to conclude that something is wrong with the picture when you go and look at the uh, the individual training logs and people are out there putting in you know, seven, 15, 20 hours a week of devoted mm. exercise and still carrying around extra body fat. And it, clearly they're stuck in that carbohydrate paradigm where they're burning a bunch of fuel and then consuming as much or more than they burned and carrying on with their lives with uh, no change in, you know, fat adaptation. Well, it's a, and it's a real, it, it's such an interesting thing as well, Brad, right? Because, you know, one of the major... Um, issues that endurance athletes particularly have is gastrointestinal problems. You know, at least 80% of people would have reported that they suffer, you know, at least once a week, you know, uh, issues with their stomach. And these are people stuck in that paradigm of higher carb, kind of lower fat, and even kind of moderate to high carb, you know, and they might, but because they have it in the head, they have to consume when they're out. They've almost like got no other option, but to consume. So, you know, when I'm thinking about these people, I'm like, well, you know, if you drop down the level of carbohydrate, allow for that, uh, the body to shift its fuel substrate to help, you know, begin burn body fat, you're going to start seeing a change in the physique of these athletes, you know, and potentially, you know, not have to train as much as they would otherwise train either. Because the other thing, of course, when you burn through a lot of carbohydrate, you get this increased oxidative damage, right? Because as I'm sure, you know, you, you, you know, are well familiar with is that with we burn through carbohydrates, they are not a clean burning fuel source. So they create a lot of metabolic kind of waste products that increase oxidative stress and damage in the body. It just takes a lot longer to recover from your training sessions. So, you know, having that conversation with athletes that, you know what, if you lower down the carbohydrate in your diet, sure, it might take a little while to start feeling as fit as what you would have otherwise, because of course we do have that adaptation process that occurs, over time you'll notice that your recovery is enhanced and you'll be able to hit those training sessions um, so much easier and um, get fitter from them because you're not still carrying around the, the damage from the previous sessions, which is less about the training and more about that fuel substrate that's kind of hanging around. Well, the training is causing a similar damage. You're you're inducing oxidative stress and inflammation, which is part of training to adapt to that, to give yourself a, a stressor and then recover and come back stronger. But then when you come home and you slam down uh, food that it, it itself also creates oxidative stress and inflammation, right, it's, it's crazy. And I think um, the, the athletic community seems to uh, give out free passes left and right to consume uh, more amount, higher amounts of indulgent treats and uh, processed carbohydrates because they're burning it off. Uh, but, it, you know, arguably, uh, this 
person who's demanding more from their body than the person in the next cubicle at the office who's just walking to the subway and uh, doing gardening on the weekend. Uh, this person has higher nutritional demands and you know would, would benefit from you know orchestrating the diet to contain more nutrient dense foods and and less junk and if that means having to consume uh three sweet potatoes at dinner instead of one or you know larger portions of whatever it is uh that's great as long as it's got something of value on the nutritional scoreboard yeah and you know something i was really interested in when i got into this area was looking at you know studies that look at the long term health of athletes as well and we um, on Fitter Radio, we interviewed Dr. James O'Keefe a number of years ago, all around the athletic heart. And I had the pleasure of chatting to him again a couple of weeks ago uh, for Wikipedia. And, you know, he's done a lot of research looking at longevity and kind of uh, of athletes and, you know, that whole U-shaped curve of a little bit of exercise is, you know, probably too little. There's a sweet spot, but the more you do, the greater your risk is of uh, cardiovascular um, disease and, you know, poor health outcomes. But I also wonder, you know, what would happen if you looked at an athlete population uh, or a cohort who was following more along the lines of an ancestral diet and, you know, how that might change the outcomes with that same training load. Because as you as you say, you create a lot of oxidative stress and damage through training, which is a necessary part of that adaptation process. But then on top of that, when you've got that oxidative damage from the traditional athlete diet, that is probably in part contributing to some of these negative health outcomes that we're seeing. But you know, it would be, I just think it's an interesting conversation to um, kind of explore, you know, if you did follow an ancestral approach, how would that J curve differ? J curve differ? Wow. I, I've never thought about that. That's a great point because we're making this assumption. Uh, you know, if you're running 30 miles a week as a long distance runner, uh, this can be uh, challenging to your cardiovascular health and whatnot. I think you have to go hand in hand with what the people are eating. And there mm. is a way to do it right. I think that's what the book Primal Endurance is all about is, you know, we, we presented this book, Mark Sisson and I saying, look, if you insist on doing these crazy events, the Ironman and the marathon and the ultra marathons, and we can talk like that because we've both been there and done those things. If you insist upon doing this, knowing that it's uh, antithetical to health on the baseline, that humans aren't really meant to, uh, you know, to, to perform in this manner, except for you know once in a while we're capable of great endurance feats. But most people training for uh, long distance events are doing it day after day after day. But if you insist on doing it, uh, I think the, the the pace that you're training at and the diet uh, is you know is key. And you know, we spent a lot of time discussing how important it is to to moderate your pace so that you're burning mostly fat. And then if you were to turn around and go consume mostly fat, oh my gosh, you could be a, a picture of health while you were pursuing fitness goals, which is not always uh, the case. In fact, it's usually not the case. And that's what that mm -hmm. uh, bell curve you described. I think the listener, even if you haven't seen um, the, the graph, you can envision what Dr. O'Keefe was talking about. He has a great uh, TED talk called Run for Your Life, but not too far and at a slow pace. And yeah. I was shocked to learn uh, what he contends to be uh, the point where you can achieve maximum aerobic benefits because it's incredibly low. It was like uh, two and a half hours a week 
at mm. a really slow, comfortable jogging pace and you max out, you get an A plus on your cardiovascular health and anything beyond that, you start to tempt uh, these risk factors that we know so much about, especially when you talk about the extreme athletes that have been doing this for years and years and they come up with uh, frying their electrical circuitry in their hearts and getting AFib and all these uh, disease states from mm. extreme stuff. But boy, to realize that you can max out your cardiovascular health so easily and then it's like, well, then what? What do I do with the rest of these weekly miles? And I know. If you're if you're going slow enough, I think it can all be a plus in the health category. You know, people take the summers here in in the Sierra Nevada and they walk the um, uh, the John Muir Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail. John Muir Trail is like two hundred and something miles, and a lot oh, of wow. people might take a month and and be out there on the trail. And I think when you come down off the trail after a month of you know, hiking at whatever gentle pace and you're covering eight miles a day and you're camping out and you're seeing the stars and nature and sun, uh, you're going to come back as a healthier person. Unlike the average, you know, training pattern of a month of someone preparing for an Ironman distance race, they're just right on that red line of suppressed immune function, hormone dysregulation and all those things. Yeah, totally. And, uh, I've got to say, I was a bit devastated by the low number that uh, was presented <laughs> in that <laughs> in that graph because you know, as an endurance athlete, we you know, you, I feel like I gain a lot of my um, my own kind of mental health benefits from getting out and doing the miles, and like, I absolutely love it. And so to kind of discover that it's not you know you're necessarily more that you're not really benefiting your health, but that you could be doing a disservice to it. So, yeah. Again, <laughs> well, another hard pill to swallow. Yeah. It's important that you brought up that mental health aspect. And I have, you know, lifelong friends of mine, my running buddies that I grew up with, and uh, a couple of them, like Dr. Stephen Cobrain, still active. And he'll go take a vacation and run a hundred miles in a single <gasps> week, even though he's in nice. his mid fifties, but he's enjoying the sightseeing of a, of a new area and, and tackling these trails. And he absolutely loves it. He runs at a comfortable pace. Uh, same with my other buddy, Stephen Deitch, who is, you know, a, still a national class racer at age 56 running half marathons at 124 here and there. And you hear these race reports like, oh my gosh, that's extraordinary. And they get so much value from it. And I think also we're talking about the most genetically adapted folks are the ones who love their endurance pursuits uh, so much. Uh, yeah. And I'm referencing myself where I used to crash and burn a lot when I was trying to compete on the tri circuit because I was going against guys who seemingly had way more adaptability to extreme training regimens. And I'd be, you know, crashed out for the entire weekend, just watching videos and sitting at home while they were pounding on more and more and more miles. So mm. I think there's a selection process for the people that really love it. And then, you know, for the rest of us, you have to pay attention to your own boundaries and limits and, you know, pursue those mental health goals, of course. But I think so much of it, if people really were honest about it, if they slow down, they could still get that benefit of being out in nature and on the trails and getting their dog out running and all those great things uh, without having to kind of, you know, drift into those slightly fatiguing heart rate and exertion zones where you get the instant payoff of uh, endorphins, but you mm. are tempting uh, long-term breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury. Yeah, totally. And Brad, with your activity pattern nowadays, and obviously you're, you know, you're pursuing goals outside of, you know, running, cycling, swimming, but do you get out there and hike and, and jog and go on the trails? And is that a regular part of your kind of weekly routine? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I've really had some uh, epiphanies recently. 
I published a, a video called Jogging 2.0, and it was also with an article on Mark's Daily Apple, which the title, I believe, was Don't Jog, It's Too Dangerous. That was a quote from Dr. Art Devaney. And the epiphany mm. I experienced was, you know, I've been for decades starting my day with an outing in nature with my dogs, a succession of dogs, because it's been a long time. And I think it's so wonderful as a dog owner that you owe it to the animal to get it out. Even if it's beyond your, you don't feel like it one day, it's part of my routine, no matter what, even if it's raining or I'm, I'm overtrained, I'm tired, I'm, I'm busy, you have to get the animal out into nature or else, you know, don't bother owning the animal. So mm-hmm. yes, the, the, the daily cardio has been part of my my scene for so long. Um, I'm smart. I talk about this stuff and write about it. So I honor what I'm saying and I, I keep my heart rate in that uh, comfortable aerobic zone. But what I realized and also reading some breakthrough uh, insights and science from from some good leaders is that you can obtain this cardiovascular training effect, this cardiovascular fitness in a variety of ways. It does not have to be steady state cardio Uh, Mm. to build a wonderful, fantastic cardiovascular system. Uh, Dr. Doug McGuff has a really short video on YouTube called um, There's No Such Thing as Cardio. And then there's a long one that's an hour-long presentation. Oh, I forgot the person's name. I I send it around all the time. But he's talking in detail about how when you go to the gym and you get out of your car and you walk up the stairs and you you go through the sets of uh, machines at the gym, your heart rate is well above resting heart rate the entire time as soon as you leave your car, even mm. during the two minutes of recovery where you're sitting there on the bench, checking your text messages, and then going back to the squat rack to do more. And so this variation in, in heart rate from a range of, let's say, double your resting heart rate up to perhaps your anaerobic levels, if you're doing something that's really difficult that lasts for 10 or 20 seconds, you, you come back with an amazing cardiovascular fitness benefit. And so really the only reason to engage in this steady state cardio for miles and miles is if you have performance goals. And mm. even then we know that most people do it to such an extreme that they compromise their performance. Um, they're, they're keeping that body fat packed on rather than losing it because they're in this hot overstress training patterns where the stress hormone cortisol is chronically elevated. That compromises fat burning, that compromises the, the adaptive hormones like testosterone. And you're kind of stuck in this overtraining pattern where maybe you'd, maybe you'd benefit from taking a couple few days off of your mileage and going into the gym and jumping up and down the box or climbing the rope or doing things like Brian McKenzie was an early uh, promoter of this uh, uh, CrossFit endurance methods where you know they, they'd train in a more broad and varied manner. And sure enough, it would benefit their performance if they did it correctly at a very uh, narrow, you know, extreme event like running 30 miles on a trail. Mm. And, you know, Brad, you're so well-versed in this area of, you know, recognizing, you know, the potential deleterious effects of that, you know, chronic cardio um, kind of space. With a lot of people that I see and talk to, it's still such a relatively new concept to them. Like oftentimes what I get with clients and people is, you know, sure you can, um, you know, if you're feeling like you're not hitting your numbers or you're unable to, I don't know, and, and you're you're not training as much as or as well as you would normally like, or you are picking on the pounds or not able to lose that body fat, the default is to do more and to restrict more, you know, <laughs> yeah. rather yeah. than, yeah. you know, 
do less and um, kind of take the foot off the brake. Like it takes quite a, uh, it's almost, I would say, a um, courageous, I don't know if that's the right word, but you kind of have to just, yeah, you kind of have to be a bit courageous to go, right, that other person's out training today, but I know it's not doing my health kind of any good. So I'm just going to, you know, leave it. But particularly people who are wired in that endurance space, it's so difficult to know kind of when to pull back, I think. Yeah. You have to, you have to have some trust or some faith that Mm. you can transcend this flawed paradigm, uh, especially what you just mentioned with the calories in calories out concept, because, Mm. We, you know, we we tend to um, address this problem with an effort to reduce our food consumption and then another effort to burn more calories. And mm. we now know from uh, the science is called the compensation theory that the body engages in assorted methods to uh, balance out uh, extra caloric expenditure with finding ways to get uh, more lazy and consume more food throughout the day, over the course of the day, because you woke up and kicked butt at that 6 a.m. spinning class and burned a bunch of calories. Um, There's some great research cited in Dr. Jason Fung's book, The Obesity Code, that uh, dietary patterns or pairing diet and exercise, there was a study that lasted for seven years. It was called the Woman's Nurses Health Initiative Study. Yeah, yeah. The women diligently agreed to consume 237 calories less per day and exercise more. And over the seven-year length of the study, they were predicted to drop 23 pounds per year. Because if you go to the online calculators, you can put in your base and metabolic rate for your height and weight and your age. And this is how many you burn. And this is how many calories a spinning class burns or a six mile run. And so they were predicted to just, you know, turn into a physical transformation. And at the end of seven years, the Mm. aggregate weight loss was like 0.7 pounds per per participant, 50,000 females. And so studies like these blow this uh, idea out of the water that cutting calories and burning more is going to lead to anything except for a lazier, more tired human outside of these workouts. And I think anyone can raise their hand and say, oh, gee, I've experienced that myself. And so now we have to look beyond that and go, well, then what is the secret? Yeah. And it's so interesting, isn't it? When you look at the science literature around weight loss, and this is might be a slight tangent, but you know, it doesn't, you know, when you're looking at the randomized controlled trials and, and what actually works with regards to weight loss, they're oftentimes they're using a population who, who do fall into that overweight or obese category, or as, you know, Phil Maffetone and, and Paul Lawson would call having that kind of being over fat. And, you know, these are people who do in fact have fat to lose, but even over a randomized control trial that might last 12 weeks and then they'll fold them up for six months, they only really, you know, they might drop two or three pounds. And whilst it is scientifically kind of statistically significant, I mean, how meaningful is that to someone who might have 20 pounds to lose, you know? And so there's such a, the whole space around kind of weight loss and what it takes to get it, improve your body composition is um, um, for, in that science 
uh, kind of arena is just throws a lot of questions out to what's kind of really practical and meaningful to people when you're working with actual people on a one-on-one basis day to day, right? <laughs> Instead of fake people in some study where they, they say goodbye after 12 weeks and go back to their real life, working with actual people. Yeah, I guess yeah. we should transition into some of the diet concepts since you're uh, so uh, br- living and breathing this stuff every day. And you know what? What can the the listener, the interested party, do if they've been checking a lot of good boxes and putting in the time and energy to to work out, uh, but still wishing to uh, drop excess body fat and also minimize that oxidative stress and inflammation that comes from uh, pounding the gels and the cubes and the blocks and the sugary drinks? Yeah. Well, I guess one of the first things I like to look at, Brad, is making sure you know where your baseline nutrient markers are sitting. So, you know, you if if possible, and I know right now in these COVID times, blood tests might not be as available as they are if you're in a country that isn't necessarily impacted as much by COVID. But, you know, one of the things with um with being able to lose body fat is just making sure you've got those raw materials available that you need to help with those metabolic processes in the body. So you've got a good level of B12 and folate that helps support energy metabolism, that your thyroid markers are in an optimal range, that your that your iron panel and your ferritin is again at an optimal range, which helps support um, your body's ability to drop body fat. So I always recommend first and foremost that we we get an idea of kind of where those baseline markers are at. And if, you know, if someone's feeling pretty good, um, despite the fact that they want to drop a, you know, a few pounds, then that can just serve as quite a good baseline. So if down the line things aren't feeling so good, they might look at, might look back at where they, their markers were and go and do another test and go, well, you know, there's a difference here. So maybe at that baseline level, that's where my optimum is. So I'll help support and bring up my level to that um, to that level. So obviously through supplements, because it's very difficult to do it just by a diet alone. Um, but that's, I suppose that's where I kind of quite like to start. And then, you know, and you, I know you um, talk a lot about, you know, the importance of protein. And from an endurance athlete perspective, that's where a lot of endurance athletes fall down because they are predominantly focusing on ensuring they've got adequate carbohydrate for recovery, for fueling. Or if they're a keto type athlete, which, and this is again, and I'm sure you know, like a common mistake is that they just drop the protein too low. And so, and that can, um, can impact on their ability to to drop body fat as well, just because they're unable to uh, carry out and recover from their training to the same extent as if they had an adequate protein level. So, you know, from a diet perspective, that's certainly something which I like to focus on. And what do you see out there as common deficiency patterns? What are some of the red flags that uh, people might want to look out for and even go and test. I mean, here in America, it's super easy to go to the blood draw lab. You wear your mask, you have a spaced out uh, waiting room. And I've gone, you know, 10 times in the last year because I'm constantly testing my testosterone and other things for my my MOFO mission research. So uh, it, it's no excuse. There's no barrier. You can pay for your own test. You don't even have to see a physician, but you can get it ordered mm. through your physician and get it, get it covered for many people. But uh, the, the tests are so affordable now that most of us can get out there and get some really good uh, insights, but then 
maybe some of this stuff is subclinical and we could use some additional insights, uh, especially for the athletic healthy population where most of the stuff looks normal, but that might not be of interest if you want to be better than the pathetic normal that the average citizen is today in America and the other developed countries where we're we're suffering from the overfat pandemic, as Maffetone calls it. Yeah, such a good question because I often, you know, when I um, talk to athletes and they go to their doctors because that's how we generally do it in New Zealand and and then they call up their lab and the and or their uh, doctor's office and the the person on the other end of the phone goes, oh, you're fine, you're all normal, but you're absolutely right about that. That normal reference range kind of for a lot of the markers kind of takes into consideration everyone that's ever gone in to get a blood test at that particular lab and then just takes that average, which isn't necessarily optimal. So I mean, I think thyroid is like a great example of, of that. So the, for, for thyroid, it's quite well known in the um, science and, and in their kind of, I'm going to say alternative health practice, but I don't really want to say alternative or integrative, but people in the know understand <laughs> that. Uh, people in yeah. the know versus people not in the know. Yeah, yeah a little bit. Yeah. There. yeah, the forward thinking, <laughs> open-minded, highly uh, critical thinking health uh, expert. Yes. Yes. People who kind of stay up to the play. Like, so thyroid stimulating hormone has, you know, a a reference range of between 0.3 to 4. Now, this hormone is responsible in the body for telling your brain to um, increase the production of something called T4, which is often known as our inactive thyroid hormone. And then that's converted to T3, which is our active thyroid hormone is responsible for you know a host of things in the body including energy metabolism and feeling good xyz um and that tsh uh interval though it's so wide and it was originally developed including people with with suboptimal thyroid function in it so it's and i'm sure this is not news to to your listeners but just to remind the listeners that you know generally speaking a thyroid interval uh, or sorry tsh interval of between kind of 1 to 2.5 is considered optimal yet in your kind of doctor's lab anything up to say you know 4 might be considered normal and they won't move on any of those other kind of markers um so that's a good one so the higher number is a bit of a concern? Higher number is a concern because anything above 2.5 indicates that your that your thyroid thinks that it needs, or your brain's thinking, oh, there's not enough T4 hormone, so I'm going to have to start pushing out more, um, more TSH to signal to the, to the brain. But I mean, that's quite a complex, like what's actually occurring. It could be any number of things as to why that's the case. But you know, if someone's feeling you know, that beginning, or if someone is unable to drop body fat, feeling a bit cold, um, not being able to sleep properly, um, th- these are just like three examples, not recovering well from their training, then, you know, that those could all be signs that your thyroid is in that kind of suboptimal range. So at first getting TSH measured, but also getting T4 and T3, whereas here in New Zealand, and I don't, and because you guys are able to go and get whatever tests you like, you're in a different position. But in New Zealand, you really have to kind of convince your doctor to go beyond just getting TSH measured because they're like, well, if TSH is above four, then we'll go have a look at T4. But other than that, I'm not going to, you know, that's, 
it, they're not going to move on it, which is interesting. It is frustrating as a practitioner, I suppose. Oh, sure. I mean, it's really nice to see the explosion of internet-based blood testing where you can pick and choose and take, you know, be an advocate for your own health. So if someone is feeling kind of those sluggish collective symptoms, um, what are ways that a, um, a functional practitioner, health healing oriented practitioner would, would uh, want the individual to, to correct that uh, through diet, through stress management? Are there any hot yeah. tips to get your thyroid going yeah, that's a great question, Brad. So, you know, if your TSH is kind of, is out of range from that optimal, and it, but even if T4 and T3 look normal, you'd want to measure your thyroid antibodies because if they are raised, and you know, different uh, practitioners uh, kind of have varying views on this, but you know, if they are elevated, then that does. Uh, suggests that there's some autoimmune component to your thyroid issue, which, as we know, a lot of autoimmune um, uh, responses can be driven by that stress. So um, from a diet perspective, if it is an autoimmune kind of approach, we look at the removal of dairy, of gluten, potentially nightshade vegetables, which are your potato, eggplant, tomato, chili, capsicum. We're starting to drift toward a carnivore experiment to see if <laughs> yeah. that thyroid and those those symptoms can kick back into gear. And I know I tend toward uh, feeling cold and easily getting cold, especially uh, moving to a colder climate in Lake Tahoe. And mm. I, I can uh, cite times where, you know, dietary optimization has improved some of that, uh, those tired sluggish feelings and, and trending toward cold and all those things. Um, I went through the Nourish Balance Thrive protocol with uh, Chris Kelly, and um, he he basically said, "Look, you know, you got to eat more food, man, because you're you're showing some uh, some values here in your comprehensive blood panels that uh, indicate uh, catabolic." So, everyone's individual. We're now seeing this great trend toward individualization of uh, health up to health tracking and blood testing. Uh, InsideTracker.com is one of the most impressive ones I've seen. I just got involved with mm-hmm. them, and they take genetic testing. Uh, mm. comprehensive blood panel and uh, actual lifestyle data from Fitbit or another device like that. And they put it all together on this wonderful website and you can really keep track of things. And boy, um, you know, I- I'm guilty of uh, just kind of experiencing uh, what seems like normal, but it's my, there, there might be something way better than normal that you're not even aware of. And so your your perspective is all skewed. And so, I mean, that's why we're here doing podcasts and, uh, you know, helping people directly is that uh, we want to, you know, promote this constant quest for optimization rather than mm. just settling for, oh, usually uh, I'm, I get super tired after a busy weekend where I do a moderate hike and run around and do errands. And people are just used to that. Could be from thyroid dysfunction. And I'd love to get a little more into it with, you You mentioned some of those iron markers too. And we talked about that mm. offline. Uh, mm. I think I was hitting you with some personal questions there. So how does iron come into play? And yeah. tying it back to uh, fat reduction as well as just uh, optimization, peak performance, better delivery of red blood cells to the working muscles, all that important stuff that iron's part of. 
Yeah, it's a great question, Brad. So just to change tack a little bit, well, what I will say um, before I shift gears is from an iron perspective with thyroid, often it is low ferritin and low iron markers that can contribute to suboptimal thyroid. Um, however, something which I am noticing a little bit more, particularly with my kind of uh, middle-aged um, uh, male athletes is this actual trend towards higher iron load. And it's interesting because some of the, so obviously, so ferritin is, is you know, it's super important for, for um, red blood cells, for energy, for hormones, you know, for your brain to, to function effectively for so much, you know, it's such an important nutrient, um, uh, it's such an important uh, protein in the body, but athletes often um, kind of come to me and they're feeling sluggish and they're feeling like they're unable to recover. And particularly in those male, that male athlete population, when we do their blood markers, it's not necessarily low iron that's causing the issue, but it's high iron and high ferritin. Uh, describe the representation of ferritin. Is that the yeah. circulating iron versus the stored iron? Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of it's that it's uh, ferritin is like the uh, iron, it's the protein that kind of binds iron in the bloodstream. So, you know, you'd you when you go and get a, a ferritin test, it can be anywhere between twenty to uh, four hundred or twenty to six hundred is particularly is considered that reference range. But um, what would be considered optimal is around that sixty to eighty. So. Um, in females, often it's a low ferritin that's the issue, but in males, actually, it's that high ferritin. And you know, what one thing we have to consider is, of course, that ferritin is an acute phase reactant. So, what I mean by that is, your ferritin will raise in response to inflammation in the body. So, if, for example, you, Brad, go along to get a blood test and test your iron markers, and it's on the back of I don't know, some strenuous activity that you did or or you've got a, an infection or an illness and, and your inflammation markers are raised in the body, then ferritin could also be raised. So it's not. Um, so that's one thing to be mindful of. But there are the markers that you can test to know whether or not it is iron storage that's the issue or, or that it's inflammation. But um, particularly males are much more predisposed to that a higher ferritin as they age rather than um, low ferritin. And that really does have some significant negative health outcomes um, associated with it. Like so, what? Yeah, so obviously, you know, from a um, how they feel kind of on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, they may um, have mood swings, um, increased fatigue, joint pain, uh, depression is associated with kind of high store, high ferritin, chest pain, hair loss, dizziness, impaired sexual function, reduced testosterone, abdominal pain, um, and also, you know, increased cholesterol markers. And then high ferritin is also associated with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other neurological conditions too. So kind of on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, some of these uh, kind of symptoms that I talked about, these are things which almost might be taken for um, as normal for that kind of aging endurance athlete, you know, oh, I'm just getting old. So that's why my joints hurt or, you know, I'm doing a lot of training. So I feel really tired. 
but it can be something else kind of underlying that um, that might be causing it. And so these are those kind of quite salient things, but over the long term, the significant kind of health issues, um, kind of liver cirrhosis, so you get kind of organ, sorry, you get um, iron deposits in the organs, um, diabetes, um, hyperpigmentation, actually. So this um, is when this, the color of your skin goes bronze, um, brown. Obviously, this will increase um, according to sun exposure as well. Um, but you also might notice a sort of a graying coloring as well of skin tone. So these might all be signs that your um, ferritin level is, is high. Um, and then ultimately that can lead to cardiac failure. You know, that's very chronic kind of down the line. Um, and I would be very surprised if anyone left any of these things to the point where, you know, they um, suffered from cardiac failure. However, there are people who completely just avoid the doctors, aren't they? So, aren't there? So it's just good to be mindful of that. And it's... Um, Men are more predisposed. Uh, I suppose the genetic component of it is is called hemochromatosis, so iron overload. And you can get tested with some genes um, to determine whether or not you are predisposed to high iron. Um, and that, you know, you can get that tested either at the doctor or 23andMe also has a panel which um, looks at the genetics behind iron overload. But you know, even though there are a couple of genes that indicate it, as I understand it, there are actually other genes that aren't routinely measured. So you, just because you test negative on um, the HFE genes that are measured doesn't necessarily mean that you aren't at risk from that genetic component of iron overload. So does high ferritin go hand in hand with I believe it, uh, there's other readings like iron saturation, uh, maybe mm. even there's a couple more are they, are they kind of directly associated or can you have some weird stuff? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, you know, when you're looking at testing iron, if your ferritin is high, as, as I indicated earlier, but your annual iron saturation is above 40%, then that's when your doctor would, would kind of look a little bit more into um, sort of what's going on and whether or not it is... Um, you know, a an iron overload kind of issue. Whereas if your if your saturation is normal, then it might just be that ferritin is high, might be because of those inflammatory processes mm. and not necessarily ferritin itself. So that's why getting something called high sensitive C-reactive protein measured at the same time um, can be quite a good way to um, delineate kind of which, you know, what it is that we're actually thinking, looking at here. Uh, is this just a marker of um, oxidative stress in the body or is it actually an underlying iron overload um, issue? So I guess this occurs over time. You talked about the aging athlete. I know females are at much less risk, they're at risk of low iron uh, due to mm. menstruation. And I think uh, I always thought the, um, the, the the running population, the high impact sports, you're making, you're, you're uh, shedding some iron when you're um, traumatizing the muscles. And yeah. uh, so that, that lowers your risk too. But um, as, as I told you over, um, over email, um, over the last several years, I've come up a few times with um, a sky high iron reading and 
I immediately went and donated blood as my strategy. Um, yeah. But I, I suppose I was uh, accumulating that for whatever reasons outside of genetic predispositions, but just time and dietary yeah. patterns using the cast iron skillet, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, those things, you know, a high iron intake without getting rid of it for sure. Um, although, you know, if you look at kind of clinically speaking, it would take a lot. Like, you know, someone might have a, uh, I don't think you could say that just because you have like a high red meat intake that you're going to therefore be, um, that your iron is going to reach some of those you know, really damaging levels. Um, it is generally more of a, um, a, I guess, a predisposition to to storing iron rather than just that someone is now eating red meat seven times a week. So therefore, they're going to be in a position where they have to, um, where they are at risk of some of these um, issues that that are experienced with ferritin. So it is more of a, I'd say it's more of a genetic, but it is still quite common, you know. I don't know. Maybe there's another piece of the puzzle that that pe- people that we're not familiar with yet as to why it is increasingly more common. Good, something to watch out for. And um, what about some diet strategies to optimize male hormone function, female hormone function as we age? Yeah, great. So, um, so if you are in that position of of a higher ferritin level and you're unable to you know, get it down, then, I mean, you mentioned blood donation. So that's not a dietary strategy, but that's certainly one strategy. And, you know, if someone is unable to donate blood because they were in Britain during the mad cow disease or, um, or, or something like that, then, um, then a medical phlebotomy just to kind of get rid of blood, um, costs a bit of money, but you know, it's, it's worth it, obviously. Um, from a diet perspective, looking at um, combining your meals so you're able to reduce the absorption of iron that you eat. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give up. I mean, I would definitely reduce down red meat consumption and um, and liver consumption because it is so rich in iron. Also mussels and oysters. I don't know how many people would sit down to a dozen oysters at dinner, but maybe those lucky ones amongst us do, um, probably avoid that whilst you're trying to get your iron kind of back under um, under control because they're very high in bioavailable iron. But also alongside meals, um, having a, a, a calcium um, supplement, 300 milligrams, to help bind the iron and reduce mm. um, its absorption, um, including phytate. So this is obviously going to be moving away from a, carna- a carnivore approach because phytate you only see really in um, beans, legumes, um, uh, some vegetables. So something like that, um, in addition to meals, would help bind the iron. But of course, you do want to ensure that you're, you've got adequate zinc because something that binds iron is also going to bind to zinc. So it's just making sure that you are familiar with kind of all pieces of that kind of, um, I suppose, puzzle. Um, but outside of that, uh, turmeric has um, been found to reduce iron absorption. Uh, and doing um, some hit training, actually. So 
getting out and doing that short, sharp exercise, that'll raise something called hepcidin. And hepcidin is an enzyme in the gut, which will bind iron and reduce its absorption. So using that as a tool to help reduce that iron absorption um, uh, two to three times a week, I would say would be another really good strategy. And I'm sure that lots of your listeners probably do that type of short, sharp, good for you type exercise without overdoing it as well. So um, that would be another strategy. And uh, coffee and tea, the polyphenols and the tannins reduce iron absorption. So, you know, someone who is low iron, you always say, do not consume mm. your um, foods, your iron, your meals with, with coffee and tea, whereas the opposite is true with someone who is struggling with high ferritin. Interesting. Sounds like it's uh, highly individualized. I mean, I'm, I'm talking a lot about my fascination with a carnivore-ish uh, style dietary pattern. I'm not strict, but I'm definitely drifting in that direction for the nutritional benefits. Uh, mm. But then here I am with a blood test suggesting that uh, I'm getting uh, plenty of iron, probably too much at times. And so I would be on like a personal quest to, to steer, steer the corner, but maybe uh, the next person would have a completely different uh, point of view and, and uh, dietary strategies. Yeah, but I also think someone like you, Brad, like you're, you know, because it, you know, a lot of the the uh, things like turmeric, the HIT training, you know, stuff like that, and the and the calcium supplement, they might be options for someone like you who really does thrive on a diet that, um, mm. you know, contains you know good sources of uh, or good amounts of animal protein, and I wouldn't suggest that. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't suggest that um, reducing a lot of that would be the the best approach for almost anyone because you and I both know that so many people struggle to get in what they need rather than that they need to kind of um, cut back. But potentially looking at the sources, so potentially if someone does have like quite a high ferritin level, then actually, um, you know, switching to the, the lighter coloured meats, chicken, uh, pork, um, fish, salmon, eggs, like these are all, I mean, these all do contain some iron, but not to the same extent as your, you know, your red meats. So having a look at those um, sources of, of iron within your foods and making that switch, you can still do what you want to be doing, but just do it in a slightly different way. Uh, so you've mentioned protein a few times and mm. the, the critical importance of getting enough protein. And over the last oh, 10 years, I guess, We've been hit with some uh, people who are deep into it have been hit with some uh, disparate points of view. Uh, there was for a while going around this uh, warning that over consuming protein uh, routinely can, you know, elevate those growth factors and, and increase your cancer risk. It now seems like some of that uh, commentary was based on the average sedentary human who's stuffing their face with too much food in general, including protein, and not. Uh, doing anything to uh, boost health in other ways. And now it seems like uh, those warnings have been uh, toned down. And there's a lot of people, especially in the carnivore scene, especially some of the people I, I really respect on this saying, hey, you know what, it's okay to get uh, beyond that commonly cited uh, recommendation. Uh, usually a lot of people uh, have heard about this uh, 0.7 grams per pound of lean body mass. That would be 1.54 kilos at 1.54 uh, 
grams per kilogram, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where do you uh, stand on that if you like to spout recommendations or maybe yeah. you can just elaborate? Yeah, this is like one of my favorite topics, actually, because what I, and you'll know this as well, I'm sure that, you know, when people talk about, you know, oh, protein, you know, everyone eats too much protein, they're usually actually in reference to that 0.8 grams per kg body weight. So very low protein, which is what is in the recommended dietary um, intake or recommended dietary allowance, you know, that's kind of that minimum threshold with which to survive. But everyone looks at it as this kind of maximum with which we should hit. But if you right. follow the, anyone, the recommendations uh, are for survival, basically. Yeah. But yeah. we, we, and it's, it's dispensed as a recommendation. I, it's crazy, right? And, you know, I was looking at something the other day, a nutritionist wrote here in New Zealand, and she put up a table of the recommended protein that was 46 grams for a female, you know, from the age of 19 to 54. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me that a nutritionist is telling someone this. Like, it takes no time at all to go to search up Stu Phillips, Don Lehman, you know, Jose Antonio, like these, like, uh, experts in the protein nutrition field um, to to know that that is um, so unreasonably low, really. So when I talk to people, like I, my recommendations are generally at the at the low end of the scale would be um, say one point eight, probably one point six to one point eight, depending on who it is I'm talking to. But most of the time, it's at least two grams per kilogram of ideal body weight, um, if not more. And there have been studies, such as Jose Antonio's study, looking at you know the long term consumption of protein up to four point four grams per kg body weight, which would be very difficult to get in. It's two grams per pound. So someone mm. like me weighing at 165, that's uh, eating f- 330 grams in a day, which would be, uh, you know, eight eggs, three steaks, uh, some some good servings of fish. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, for, by comparison, yeah. a scoop in a typical protein supplement, I think usually the scoops are 20 gram scoops. Yeah. So that would be... Uh, 15, 15 of those scoops, if, if nothing else. Yeah, a lot of protein. Yeah. And I think you can uh, hit that satiety point pretty easily where you're not going to routinely overconsume protein because uh, unlike potato chips, you can get pretty full after you've consumed two steaks and, and six eggs. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, studies like like that one that I mentioned, like have time and again found no detrimental impact of consuming that much protein. And I'm certainly not standing here saying we should all consume those super high levels of protein, but I get such a good illustration that protein is, you know, a higher protein diet shouldn't be feared. And I know that a lot of, there's that rhetoric out there, particularly in this plant-based, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of space that, you know, we all need to be reducing it. But, you know, when you hit protein numbers that help support hormone regulation, appetite regulation, help with blood sugar stabilization, brain function, muscle mass retention, bone density, all of these things, then that is optimal for health, you know, and some of these things that we've talked about with oxidative damage, metabolic damage of a high carbohydrate load, like these aren't an issue when you when you are able to consume a protein load, which is up around kind of the, the amounts that we were talking about. So, so you fan. said uh, 2.0 or higher in, in kilos. And so for the the, uh, the the English system listener, that would be around a, a gram per pound. And 
Um, yeah. It's certainly not unreasonable and may, you may, may give you a boost in uh, energy to the extent that you can uh, work out more and, and feel more energetic throughout the day. I, I'm pulling this great soundbite from my interview with Rob Wolf, uh, where he said, if you want to live longer, lift more weights and eat more protein. And yeah. of course, those go hand in hand. And I think the people who are feeling uh, slightly depleted, and I'd, I'd probably put myself in that category at times over the years where, mm. again, my normal was that I could handle uh, this many workouts a week and then I'd get too tired and I'd have to lay around all day if I did something really difficult. But uh, maybe there was some dietary optimization that could have you know, popped me back up from uh, a hard training session 24 hours later instead of 48 hours. I don't doubt it, Brad, because I know when I started really focusing on my protein intake and subsequently I got my clients to really focus on it, like I had a hamstring tendinopathy, just completely disappeared. Uh, clients with Achilles issues and another person, um, I'm just thinking of top of my head, they had some like hip-related issues. Once they started having, like these are female clients, like um, up around that two grams per kg body weight, a lot of these issues... Um, have resolved because you finally you've got those amino acids as raw materials to help the rebuild and the re, you know and to help support that muscle mass whereas prior to that their protein load was probably too low and therefore you know those amino acids aren't being used the way that they should be so yeah I'm definitely a fan and you know if you look at the literature like Stu Phillips suggests that any you know if we're looking at muscle protein synthesis which is how we always think about protein like how do we optimize muscle protein synthesis it, it is at that 1.6 grams per kg body weight um, so he says you know there's no need really to for muscle protein synthesis to go beyond that but he then goes on to say but a higher protein load can help with um, these other things, which I mentioned regarding appetite, blood sugar regulation. And, you know, you, you, a lot of practitioners say the same thing. So that's definitely the, the thing I focus on most with endurance athletes. Well, for fat loss too, to bring the conversation back in a circle, if, I mean, there's a reason these high protein diets work, they're highly satiating. They keep you away from high carbohydrate intake, which would be uh, opposite, stimulating more appetite. And yeah. boy, um, it, it's it's a pretty good trick if you're constantly feeling well-nourished and satisfied from from great meals and you're kicking into accelerated fat burning, that's a pretty big winner. Absolutely. And one of my um, colleagues and friends down here, Jamie Scott, worked with a, you know, a, a top level runner. And, you know, Jamie's ancestrally minded and he was the guy that really kind of got me started in this in this whole area of the ancestral kind of diet approach and um and they looked at um protein and carbohydrate in this runner's diet and you know he was doing some high-end um kind of efforts and unable to recover and they started by adding an additional pro uh, carbohydrate to an already moderate protein load and and it just didn't work for him he, he started getting bloating and he would just could, felt that lethargy of that kind of post-carb coma and, and things like that. So instead they dropped the carbohydrate down, they pushed the protein up and suddenly he was, you know, firing on all cylinders. And I don't know if you've heard of um, Cynthia Montaloni. Oh, YouTube uh, viewers can see the cover of her book that you just put up there. Fast Titled Over 40. Fast Over 40. 
this woman is amazing brad you must speak to her on your on your show she is a carnivore athlete she's a she's a uh, usa 400 meter champion at the olympics as part of the relay team for um over 40 plus i believe in the single event as well she lives on maui her her whole premise is eat meat basically and i think your listeners would absolutely love um uh, hearing what Cynthia had to say. And she's just a beautiful human being. So I would highly recommend um, her book. Uh, and it's very much in line with, you know, that sprinting. She's all for sprinting and strength work and um, is totally against chronic cardio. Mickey, this has been some great stuff. Uh, I, I, I guess before we go, I, I did ask you about the, the sex hormones and the connection there to diet. And I, I think the protein discussion probably leads right in that direction. But if there's anything else uh, to to uh, comment on that you're, yeah. that's on your mind and with your clients, I'd love to hear. Yeah, sure. So I suppose um, with regards to sex hormones, you know, cholesterol makes up the raw material of the production of the stress hormones. And so if you're not consuming adequate amounts of dietary cholesterol, then you can you know, that's only going to um, result in in that lower production. In addition to, if you do have a higher stress component, be it oxidative stress that's occurring through diet or just through training, then that is also going to deplete your, your sex hormones. So, you know, everything that we've talked about, Brad, um, optimizes your body's hormone production. And, you know, the old approach of, high carb, high training, high stress is pretty much what tanks sex hormones. So yeah, I don't know. Eat meat. Pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> Good pretty stuff. Simple. Check out yeah. check out our carnivore scores chart that's out and about now that ranks the most nutritious foods on earth. I'll send Brilliant. you a copy so you can distribute it in New Zealand, but we're pretty excited about that project I've done with Kate Kretzinger, another health coach in America. Awesome. And, um, Mickey Willadon, bring in, bring in the heat from New Zealand. Great show. Thank you so much for the insights. Brad, it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you so much. Okay, listeners, go check out Mickeypedia. And where else can we connect with you? Uh, I'm on Instagram, at Mickey Willadon, at the same for Twitter. Facebook is at Mickey Willadon Nutrition. And, um, but mostly Insta, I'm on there doing stories all the time. Um, and of course, uh, my website's mickeywillardin.com. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkearns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. 
Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.